Part three, chapter seven of War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. The Slippervox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. On the twenty fourth of November, Kutuzov's fighting army, bivouacked near Olmutz, made ready to be reviewed on the following day by the Emperor of Russia and the Emperor of Austria. The Imperial Guards, which had just arrived from Russia, encamped about fifteen versts from Olmutz, and on the next day were to proceed directly to the review which would take place about ten o'clock in the morning, on the parade-ground at Almutz. Nikolai Rostov, on that day, had received a note from Boris, informing him that the Izmailovsky regiment was going to encamp about fifteen versts away, and that he wanted to see him to give him some letters and some money. The money came particularly handy to Rostov just now, when, after the toils of the campaign, the army had settled down at Olmutz, and well-provided Salters, and Austrian Jews, offering all sorts of enticements, infested the camp. The Pavlograd warriors enjoyed banquet after banquet, celebrated in honor of promotions won during the campaign, as well as excursions into the town where Carolina, called Vergenka, or the Hungarian, had recently opened a tavern, at which all the waiters were girls. Rostov had just celebrated his promotion from Yunker to Cornet, had bought Denisov's horse, Bedouin, and was in debt to his comrades and the Salters on every side. On receipt of the note from Boris, Rostov rode into Olmutz with some comrades, dined there, drank a bottle of wine, and rode off alone to the guards' camp to find the friend and companion of his youth. Rostov had not as yet had a chance to procure his new uniform. He wore a soiled Yunker's jacket, with private's cross, his ordinary, well-worn, leather-seated riding trousers, and an officer's sabre with a sword-knot, the horse which he rode was a dawn pony, which he had bought during the campaign, of a Cossack. His crumpled cap was rakishly set sideways on the back of his head. When he reached the camp of the Izmailovsky regiment, he thought how much he should surprise Boris and all his comrades of the guard by appearing before them like a veteran who had been under fire. The guard had made the whole campaign as though it were a picnic, making a great display of their neatness and discipline. Their marches had been short, their knapsacks had been transported on the baggage-wagons, and the officers had been given splendid entertainments at every halting-place by the Austrian authorities. The regiments entered and left the cities with music-playing, and during the whole campaign, much to the pride of the guard, the men had marched in serried ranks, keeping step, while the officers, mounted, rode in their places of assignment. Boris, during the whole campaign, had marched and halted with Berg, who had now risen to be Rotnui Commandeer, or captain. Berg, having been given a company, had succeeded by his promptness and punctuality in winning the goodwill of his superiors, and his financial affairs were now in very good shape. Boris had made many acquaintances with men who might be of service to him, and by means of a letter of introduction given him by Pierre, had become acquainted with Prince Andrei Bolkonsky, through whom he hoped to obtain a place on the staff of the commander-in-chief. Berg and Boris, neatly and elegantly dressed, were resting after their day's journey, and, seated in a neat room that had been made ready for them, were playing checkers at a small round table. Berg held between his knees the pipe which he was smoking. Boris, with the carefulness characteristic of him, had piled up the checkers in pyramidal form with his delicate white fingers, and was waiting for Berg's move, and looking at his opponent's face, evidently thinking only of the game, just as he always thought only of what occupied him at the moment. "'There now, how will you get out of that?' he asked. "'We'll do our best,' replied Berg, 
touching a king and then dropping his hand again. At this moment the door opened. Ah, you petit fan à la couche d'Omir, he cried, quoting the words of their old nurse, in which he and Boris always found great amusement. But Yushki, how you have changed! Boris arose to meet Rostov, but as he did so he took pains to pick up and replace the checkers that had fallen, and he was about to embrace his friend, but Nikolai slipped out of his grasp. With that feeling peculiar to youth, which suggests the avoidance of beaten paths, and the expression of feelings like everyone else, and especially that often hypocritical fashion which obtains with our elders, Nikolai wanted to do something unusual and original, on the occasion of meeting his friends. He wanted to give Boris a pinch or a push, anything except kiss him, as was universally done. Boris, on the contrary, threw his arms around Rostov in a composed and friendly fashion, and kissed him three times. They had not met for almost six months, and in such an interval when young men have been taking their first steps on the pathway of life, each finds in the other tremendous changes, due to surroundings so entirely different from those in which they had taken their first steps of life. Both had changed greatly since they last met, and each was equally anxious to show the other the changes that they had undergone. Oh, you cursed dandies, spruce and shiny, just in from a promenade, not much like us poor sinners of the line, exclaimed Rostov, with baritone notes in his voice, and with brusque army manners, quite new to Boris, and he exhibited his own dirty and bespattered trousers. On hearing Rostov's loud voice, the German mistress of the house put her head in through the door. Rather pretty, hey? cried Nikolai, with a wink. What makes you shout so? You will scare them, said Boris. I wasn't expecting you today, he added. It was only this afternoon that I sent my note to you through an acquaintance of mine, Kutuzov's adjutant, Bolkonsky. I didn't think of its reaching you so soon. Well, how are you? Been under fire already, have you? asked Boris. Rostov said nothing in reply, but shook the Georgievsky cross on the lace of his coat, and pointed to his arm, which he carried in a sling, looking at Berg with a smile. "'As you see,' said he. "'Well, well, so you have,' returned Boris, with a smile. "'And we have also had a glorious campaign. You know his Imperial Highness was most of the time near our regiment, so that we had all sorts of privileges and advantages. What receptions we had in Poland! What dinners and balls! I can't begin to tell you. And the Cesarevich was very courteous to all of us officers. Then the two friends related their experiences, the one telling of the jolly good times with the hussars, and his campaign life, the other of the pleasures and advantages of serving under the direct command of men high in authority, and so on. Oh, you guardsmen, cried Rostov. But come now, send out for some wine. Boris scowled. Certainly, if you really wish it, and going to his couch he took out from under the clean pillows a purse, and ordered his man to bring wine. Oh, yes, and I will deliver over to you some of the letters and your money, he added. Rostov took his packet, and flinging the money on the sofa, leaned both elbows on the table and began to read. He read a few lines, and then gave Berg a wrathful glance. Berg's eyes fastened upon him, annoyed him, and he shielded his face with the letter, "'Well, they've sent you a good lot of money,' exclaimed Berg, glancing at the heavy purse, half buried in the sofa. "'And here we have to live on our salaries, Count. Now I will tell you about myself.' "'Look here, Berg, my dear fellow,' said Rostov. "'When I find you, with a letter just received from home, and with a man with whom you want to talk about all sorts of things, 
I will instantly leave you so as not to disturb you. Hear what I say. Get you gone anywhere, anywhere, to the devil, he cried, and then seizing him by the shoulder and giving him an affectionate look full in the face, evidently for the purpose of modifying the rudeness of his words, he added, Now see here, don't be angry with me, my dear heart. I speak frankly because you are an old acquaintance. Ah, for heaven's sake, Count, I understand perfectly, said Berg, getting up and swallowing down his throaty voice. Go and see our hosts. They have invited you, suggested Boris. Berg put on his immaculate, neat, and dustless coat, went to the mirror, brushed the hair up from his temples, after the style of the emperor, Alexander Pavlovich, and, being persuaded by Rostov's looks that his coat was noticeable, left the room with a smile of satisfaction. Ugh, what a brute I am, though, exclaimed Rostov, reading the letter. What now? Ugh, what a pig I am that I did not write them sooner, and frighten them so. Ugh, what a pig I am, he repeated, suddenly reddening. Well, you sent Gavrilo for wine, have you? Very good. We'll have a drink, said he. Among the home letters there was enclosed a note of recommendation to Prince Bagration, which the old countess at Anna Mikhailovna's suggestion obtained from some acquaintance and sent to her son, urging him to present it and get all the advantage she could find from it. "'What nonsense! Much I need this,' said Rostov, flinging the letter on the table. "'Why did you throw it down?' asked Boris. "'Oh, it was a letter of suggestion. What the deuce do I want of such a letter?' "'Why do you say that?' asked Boris, picking up the letter and reading the inscription. "'This letter might be very useful to you.' "'I don't need anything, and I don't care to become anyone's adjutant.' "'Why not, pray?' asked Boris. "'It's a lackey's place.' "'You still have some queer notions, I see,' rejoined Boris, shaking his head. "'And you're the same old diplomat. However, that's not to the point. "'How are you?' asked Rostov. "'Just exactly as you see.' So far, all has gone well with me, but I confess, I should very much like to be made an adjutant, and not stick to the line. Why? Because, having once entered upon the profession of arms, it is best to make one's career as brilliant as possible. Yes, that's true, said Rostov, evidently thinking of something else. He gave his friend a steady, inquiring look, evidently trying in vain to find in his eyes the answer to some puzzling question. Old Gavrilo brought the wine. "'Hadn't we better send now for Alphonse Karluich?' asked Boris. "'He will drink with you, for I can't.' "'Yes, do send for him. But who is this Dutchman?' asked Rostovs, with a scornful smile. "'He's a very, very nice, honourable and pleasant man,' exclaimed Boris. Rostov once more looked steadily into Boris's eyes and sighed. Berg came back, and over the bottle of wine, the conversation between the three officers grew more lively. The two guardsmen told Rostov of their march, and how they had been honored in Russia, Poland, and abroad. They told about the sayings and doings of their commander, the Grand Duke, together with anecdotes about his goodness and irascibility. Berg, as usual, kept silent when there was nothing that specially concerned himself, but when they began to speak about the goodness and irascibility of the Grand Duke, he told with great gusto how, in Galicia, he happened to have a talk with the Grand Duke. The Grand Duke was making the tour of the regiment, and became very angry at the disorderly state of the division. With a smile of complacency on his face, Berg told how the Grand Duke, in a great state of vexation, came up to it and shouted, Arnotui, villains, 
being a favorite term of abuse when he was vexed, and called the company commander. Would you believe it, Count? I was not the least scared, because I knew that I was all right. And, Count, I may say without boasting, that I knew all the regulations by heart, and the standing orders as well, knew them just as well as our Father in heaven. And so, Count, in my company, there was no complaint to be made of negligence. And that was the reason of my being so composed, and having such an untroubled conscience. I stepped forward, here Berg stood up and represented in pantomime how he had raised his hand to his visor as he stepped forward. Really it would have been hard to imagine a face more expressive of deference and self-sufficiency. Oh, how he scolded me, rated me, you might say, rated and rated and rated mortally, not for life but for death, as the Russians say, and called me an Arnaut, and a devil, and threatened me with Siberia, proceeded Berg, with a shrewd smile. But I knew that I was in the right, and so I made no reply. Wasn't that best, Count? What? Are you dumb? he cried. Still I hold my tongue. What do you think of that, Count? On the next day there was nothing at all about it in the general orders. So that's what comes of not losing one's wits. Isn't that so, Count? demanded Berg, lighting his pipe and sending out rings of smoke. Yes, that's splendid, said Rostov with a smile. But Boris, perceiving that Rostov was all ready to poke fun at Berg, adroitly changed the conversation. He asked Rostov to tell them how and where he had been wounded. This quite suited the young man, and he began to give a circumstantial account of it, growing more and more animated all the time. He described his action at Schöngraben exactly in the way that those who take part in battles always describe them, that is, in the way that they would be glad to have had them happen so that his story agreed with all the other accounts of the participants, but was very far from being the exact truth. Rostov was a truthful young man, for not anything in the world would he have deliberately told a falsehood. He began with the intention of telling it exactly as it happened, but imperceptibly, involuntarily, and unavoidably, as far as he was concerned, he fell into falsehood. If he had told the truth to these listeners of his, who had already heard from others, just as he himself had many times, the story of the charge, and had formed a definite idea of how the charge was made, and expected a substantially similar account of it from him, either they would not have believed him, or, what would have been worse, they would have come to the conclusion that Rostov was himself to blame for it, and that he had not undergone what he claimed to have undergone, since it did not agree with what is usually related of cavalry charges. He could not tell them in so many words that they had all started on the trot, that he had fallen from his horse, sprained his arm, and run away from the Frenchman with all his might and main into the forest. Moreover, in order to tell the story in its grim reality, he would have been obliged to exercise much self-control to tell only what had occurred. To tell the truth is very hard, and young men are rarely capable of it. It was expected of him to tell how he grew excited under the fire, and, forgetting everything, had dashed like a whirlwind against the square, how he had cut and slashed with his sabre right and left, as a knife cuts cheese, and how at length he had fallen from exhaustion, and the like. And that was what he told them. In the midst of his tale, just as he was saying the words, you can't imagine what a strange sensation of frenzy you experienced during a charge, Prince Andrei Bolkonsky, whom Boris had been expected, came into the room. Prince Andrei, who liked to bear a patronizing relationship toward young men, 
was flattered at having Boris consigned to his protection, and was very well disposed toward him. Boris had succeeded in making a pleasant impression upon him, and he had made up his mind to have the young man's desire gratified. Being sent with dispatches from Kutuzov to the Cesarevich, he had looked up his young protégé, expecting to find him alone. When he came in and found there a hussar of the line, relating his military experiences, a sort of individual whom the prince could not endure, he gave Boris an affectionate smile, scowled at Rostov, half-closing his eyes, and with a stiff little bow took his seat wearily and indifferently on the sofa. He was disgusted at finding himself in uncongenial society. Rostov, feeling this instinctively, instantly took fire. But it was all the same to the prince. This was a stranger. He looked at Boris, and saw that he seemed to be ashamed of being in company with a hussar of the line. Notwithstanding Prince Andrei's disagreeable, mocking tone, notwithstanding the general scorn which, from his point of view, as a hussar of the line, Rostov shared for the staff adjutants, to which number evidently belonged the gentleman who had just entered, Rostov felt overwhelmed with confusion, reddened, and grew silent. Boris asked what was the news at headquarters, and whether it were indiscretion for him to inquire about our future movements. "'Probably shall advance,' replied Bolkonsky, evidently not wishing to commit himself further in the presence of strangers. Berg took advantage of his opportunity to ask with his usual politeness whether it were true, as he had heard, that double rations of forage were to be supplied to the captains of the line. At this Prince Andrei smiled, and replied that he could not give an opinion in regard to such important questions of state, and Berg laughed heartily with delight. "'In regard to that matter of yours,' said Prince Andrei, turning to Boris, again, "'we will talk about it by and by,' and he glanced at Rostov. "'You come to me after the review. We will do all that is in our power.' And glancing around the room, he addressed himself to Rostov, pretending not to notice his state of childish confusion, which was rapidly assuming the form of ill-temper. Said he, "'I suppose you were telling about the affair at Schungraben. Were you there?' "'Certainly I was there.' spitefully replied Rostov, as though desiring by his tone to insult the adjutant. Volkonsky noticed the hussar's state of mind, and it seemed to him amusing. A scornful smile played lightly over his lips. Yes, there are many stories afloat now about that affair. Stories, indeed, exclaimed Rostov in a loud voice, turning his angry eyes on Boris and Volkonsky. Yes, many stories, but the stories we tell are the accounts of those who were under the hottest fire of the enemy— our accounts have some weight, and are very different from the stories of those staff officers, milk-suckers, who win rewards by doing nothing. "'By which you mean to insinuate that I am one of them?' demanded Prince Andrei, with a calm and very pleasant smile. A strange feeling of anger, and at the same time of respect for the dignity of this stranger, were at this moment united in Rostov's mind. "'I was not speaking of you,' said he. "'I do not know you, and I confess I have no desire to know you.' I merely made a general remark concerning staff officers. "'And I will say this much to you,' said Prince Andrei, interrupting him, a tone of calm superiority ringing in his voice. "'You wish to insult me, and I am ready to have a settlement with you, it being very easy to bring about, if you have not sufficient self-respect. But you must agree with me that the time and place are exceedingly unpropitious for any such settlement.' We are all soon to take place in a great and far more serious duel, and moreover, Drubetskoy here, who says that he is an old friend of yours, 
cannot be held accountable for the fact that my face was unfortunate enough to displease you. However, he went on to say, as he got up, you know my name, and you know where to find me. But don't forget, he added, that I consider that neither I nor you have any ground for feeling insulted, and my advice, as a man older than you, is not to let this matter go any further. Well, Drubetskoy, on Friday, after the review, I shall expect you. Au revoir, called Prince Andrei, and he went out with a bow to both of them. It was only after Prince Andrei had left the room that Rostov remembered what reply he should have made, and he was still more out of temper because he had not had the wit to say it. He immediately ordered his horse brought round, and bidding Boris farewell, rather dryly, rode off to his own camp. Should he go next day to headquarters and challenge this captious adjutant, or should he follow his advice and leave things as they were? That was the question that tormented him all the way. At one moment he angrily imagined how frightened this little, feeble, bumptious man would look when covered by his pistol. The next he confessed with amazement that of all the men whom he knew there was none whom he should be more glad to have as his friend than this same detestable adjutant. End of chapter 7